This is Fair and Square, a podcast from Hudson Sandler. This is the Fair and Square podcast from Hudson Sandler. I'm Adam Batstone with the latest episode in this podcast series in which I'll be talking to a variety of people from different walks of life who are making a difference in business, science, media, the arts and to the world we live in. This is an opportunity to hear in more depth from those with experience, perspective or opinions that shape contemporary society. Today, I'm at the Francis Crick Institute in London to meet its chief executive, Sir Paul Nurse. Sir Paul is a geneticist and one of the UK's foremost scientists whose career achievements would take a very long time to list. Suffice to say, they range from being awarded a Nobel Prize for medicine in 2001 to being made a freeman of his home London borough of Harrow. His is a most impressive CV. Sir Paul, or Paul, if you'll forgive me, welcome to Fair and Square. It's a pleasure to be talking to you, Adam. I'd like to start, if I may, in a Desert Island Disc style, by asking you, of all the many accolades, doctorates, fellowships, awards that you may have received through your career, are there any which you find particularly important, and and why do you choose those? Well, I think the Nobel Prize for a scientist has got to be top of the pole, really. There's not many of them awarded. You dream when you're a young scientist, you might get a Nobel. And in my case, I was lucky enough. And let me stress, there's quite a lot of luck in getting a Nobel Prize. And I'm really very proud of that. It's obviously an extraordinary achievement, as you say, a very small group of people who can claim to have done that. Just for the benefit of our listeners who may not be scientists, just just remind us briefly what, what that prize was for. Yes, so I'm a geneticist, as you said, and a cell biologist. I'm particularly interested in what controls the division of a cell from one to two, which is the basis of all growth and development and goes wrong in cancer. Uh, Quite some years ago, my colleagues and myself discovered the molecules that control that process. And that in turn means that it's actually been the same control for 1,500 million years. And that really was what the Nobel Prize was all about. Good for understanding basic problem in biology, also useful for understanding cancer. And it's interesting and good to hear you talking about the science because I'm sure you won't mind me saying that I I think you're going to be 74 years old quite soon. That's uh, not not a bad age by by anyone's standards, but there's no question of you reaching for your pipe and slippers quite yet, and you still would consider yourself to be first and foremost an active working scientist. What what keeps you busy and excited? Well, uh, as you've said, I'm director, uh, chief executive of the Francis Crick. It's um, up to 2,000 people working here, so that is a job. But it isn't what really keeps me alive. What keeps me alive is the research in my lab. I have a lab of 10 people, about half a dozen graduate students, and several more senior people. And every day, something interesting is happening. I'm usually, I mean, things aren't working, to be quite honest, because if you're at the forefront of a research activity, things often fail. And that's the nature of science. It's just the nature of science. So I'm there, helpfully, I hope, to encourage people perhaps uh, provide explanations when things don't work, almost as an amateur psychiatrist to cheer them up when things aren't working. That's what really 
keeps me going. And I'm really pleased to say that I'm likely, because I'm still pretty healthy, to be doing this for some years to come. Well, fingers crossed that that is the case. And it must be interesting for you as a scientist, and obviously someone who's kind of been around for a while working in that field, what we saw recently with the COVID pandemic was people in all different walks of life from all over the world suddenly, out of necessity, took an interest in science in maybe a way that they would normally not be interested or would take things for granted. Did, did that sudden spike of interest, both in the media and more generally, do you think that's a useful thing or, or do you think it's almost a distraction because people get so many things wrong, to put it bluntly? Well, I think it is useful because often the general public don't realise how science and technology is affecting nearly everything they do. And it's very important that they do know that because for a healthy society, a healthy democracy, we are increasingly going to have to make decisions that have are impacted by um, science and the applications of science. And we've got to work out ways in which we can engage society and the public in general to actually do that. So when there's something like the pandemic, when it's right in front of everybody, I think it's a, it, it's good for people to actually start thinking not only about how that pandemic can be um, handled most effectively, but actually also how we as a society can think about the issues that come up. And we haven't really solved all those yet. And these are good examples where we learn from to actually end up, I think, with a healthier society. So it's interesting that you talk about the democratic process in relation to that, and obviously the relationship between the scientific community doing the research, supplying the evidence, and then the political community who are expected to take that information and interpret that in a way which is going to have significant bearing on people's lives. So I know we're not quite through COVID and COVID is something we're going to have to learn to live with forever. But looking back as we can do to a degree now, what is your sense of how that was managed, that cooperation or that understanding between the scientific community and the political community and the the way that the research and knowledge manifested itself in in rules and regulations? Well, I think it was a very difficult time because we knew very little about this virus and so there was lots of uncertainty at the beginning and that meant that scientific advice could only be provisional because um, it would change as we learnt more about what was going on. That can be a little difficult for the public and, for that matter, politicians to understand because at school you're taught that science is something chiselled on stone, you know, that has been around... There's a uh, right answer. There's a right answer. And this, this sort of calamity, it's not like that. It will change. So what you get is, is instead of the certainty that politicians and, for that matter, the public seek for, is a sort of changing advice as one learns more about it. So it is a very difficult thing to handle. In the case of the UK, I I think we have very good scientific advice. I think it's actually quite sophisticated and it is embedded in, in government and I think government does listen to it. 
I don't think we should be ashamed of, of how the scientists, um, even though they didn't get everything right, because they, they, they won't. I was a little disappointed in our political leaders who were trying their hardest, but would always look for commercial solutions, like let's get a company to solve this, that and the other, when the companies were stretched as well, and didn't make enough use of the public sector, such as the Crick Institute. And indeed, we did write to the ministers about that, because there was huge capacity lying idle that could have been immediately used for testing that was just absolutely not used. And that was, that was from my perspective, the biggest mistake that was made. Did you feel a degree of sympathy and empathy for those scientists who suddenly found themselves being very much in the public eye and having to do daily live briefings? From your experience, well, I'm sure you've presented many, many times at various events, that kind of spotlight and such a sensitive issue, did your kind of heart go out to them? Did you see that they were in an impossible situation for the very reason you explained about there's no right or wrong answer and they're being put up there to try and give that kind of reassurance? Total sympathy and empathy. I've done it a little bit myself, but um, nothing like the tremendous pressure on Patrick Balance and Chris Whitty in particular. I think they did exceptionally well in very, very difficult circumstances. And, of course, often were flanking senior ministers or the prime minister who were listening to what they were saying. Uh, but uh, when you're talking to 2 million, 5 million, 10 million, and you get something wrong, which will happen, I mean, it, it is a, a tremendous responsibility. So, no, I, it's a very stressful business. I, I think they did well. I think it's probably fair to describe you as a political person. I think some of the uh, notes I was reading about you before I came here today informed me that at one point in your student days you used to sell the socialist worker newspaper and I think it's probably true to say you still would describe yourself as being on, on the left of the political spectrum. Yes, I'm definitely left to centre. I was never a, um, a member of a Trotskyist party. I think I, I, I remember that too because I, I kept reading the sort of mainstream newspapers which have a tendency to be on the right and I thought really people should read a other stories, and, and and that was why I I, I got uh, involved in doing that a little bit. I was never a Trotskyist, which is what it was. I've always been pretty mainstream um, Social Democrat Labour Party, and I've been like that all my life. Just on the, on that bigger issue, and you, you've touched on it a moment ago when you're talking about how the government handled the COVID pandemic, but more broadly, how would you characterise the relationship between science and government obviously it's so important that, that especially when you have a, a high profile situation but but in all areas you know there's scientific work going on research going on in all kinds of different fields which needs to translate in policy how do you think generally politicians manage that relationship or scientists manage that relationship well the first thing i'd say is that on the whole we should probably aim at trying to keep um, science is apolitical as possible because in, in actual fact there is quite a lot of agreement on the uh, reasonable left and the reasonable right over science. They both think it's important and they both think we should have research being carried out and it needs to be supported. I primarily think I work in an arena as a scientist in an apolitical way but actually science and scientific advice on the whole 
it isn't completely apolitical, but uh, mostly, I think, should be considered that way. The other massive political upheaval that we've seen recently obviously concerns Brexit. And I know you, you've been an outspoken critic of Brexit. I'm interested to know, in the whatever we are now, six years since the vote was cast, what you think the impact has been, will be, do you think that it's inevitable that Brexit is going to have a deleterious impact on the UK scientific community? Well, the first thing to say uh, about um, Brexit um, is it, it's a, it was a major constitutional change, huge. And to set up a system where just a simple majority is all that's needed is not good politics. Now, given that was in place, um, I would respect the democratic decision. I mean, that's what we did. I don't think it's the wisest way to do it. But the fact that it was almost equal means that it shouldn't have been a hard Brexit. So the outcome was really not democratic, because if, it, if we'd had a government that was looking at this democratically, they would say, well, we voted for leaving the European Union, so we'll do that. But many don't think we should do that. And so we should do it in a very moderate way. What we got was at a very hard line way. So fundamentally, what happened with Brexit is that it was undemocratic in in my view, for those um, two reasons. Why was I against it? Primarily, the importance of the common market, where over 70% of our trade is uh, taking place to near neighbours who are culturally pretty similar to us. And the notion that we could suddenly create that sort of trade across the world, very much more distant places and um, often culturally different and more difficult to put in place was just living in la-la land as we have seen because everything has been very difficult uh, since then. I think it's time that the government explained what the advantages of Brexit have been. They've now gone very quiet on it. I don't think they like talking about it because there are no advantages that I can see. In fact, all the disadvantages just seem to have come about. So I, I don't see much advantage in Brexit, but neither the Conservative Party are not trying to make the case for it anymore because they're embarrassed about it, I suspect. And the Labour Party doesn't because they're frightened about the Red Wall and, uh, and agitating. It's time we grew up as a nation, had discussions about it, try and make Brexit work, which means getting much closer to the European Union. Now, you asked me about science. Actually, both the UK and the European Union want to be close on discovery science. When it comes to applications, um, the common market gets a little bit in the way. Both want a solution, but the European Union says, you, you, the UK, are not following the agreement with respect to the Northern Ireland Protocol, and so we're not going to play ball. Now, that problem will be solved. I mean, there's no way we're not going to solve Northern Ireland Protocol because we'll end up in a, a trade war, I suspect. And then the connection with science will um, take place. The real problem would be that if it's delayed and the government starts spending the money which is allocated for that on other things, then it may not be able to reassociate. And that's the real danger that I see at the present time. What about more locally in terms of your work here at the Crick Institute and the difficulty, I don't know, maybe you don't have a difficulty in trying to attract 
international standard scientists to come to the UK who maybe feel that this is no longer quite the international facing country that it was a few years ago? Well, there's two um, issues there. One is we we win grant awards from the European Union, which are hugely competitive. Uh, less than 10% of the applicants get awarded, and we are close to 100%. So it's a major source of our income. And the reason that's important is because it's comes from the European Union. It's very objective. When you're within a single country, I'm afraid um, green-eyed jealousy arises and people say, well, institution A is getting more money than institution B, and it isn't really quite so objective, that, which is uh, unfortunate. So for the institute, it's a real financial problem. We, mm. I had budgeted up to, I think, around £20 million a year income from this source, which is now at risk. With respect to the second issue, are we having a problem attracting? The CRIC is not. In actual fact, we are largest numbers of applicants, both for graduate students uh, right up to group leaders, is from continental Europe. So we're not being over-influenced by it. In the rest of the academic and university sector, I'm hearing from my colleagues that 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 isn't quite so rosy. But for the CRIC, we have yet to be damaged. You mentioned the impact on the university sector, and I know that throughout your career you've had a lot of involvement with higher education. I think you're currently Vice-Chancellor of the University of Bristol. Chancellor, actually. The Vice-Chancellor does the work. The Chancellor just um, dresses up in funny clothes. More honorific. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But you're obviously still directly involved at Bristol and have been many universities. I spent half my research uh, career in universities, yeah. And so... One of the things that the UK is, is most proud of is its global reputation for the quality of its higher education, partly because of Brexit, but other issues as well. Do you have worries that that status is being eroded at the moment? Yes, it is, because, uh, as I said, I travel the world. I speak mostly to scientists, um, but I uh, speak to other quite senior people. And our reputation on the world stage has eroded. We were once seen as being really highly diplomatic who were politically sensible and supported science. The reality is that we haven't been behaving in Brexit times with diplomacy. We haven't been politically skilled. And it turns out that government support for science is actually right near the bottom of advanced nations. And the amount of research money spent by the government on its own research is at a level of only half, half of, uh, of the average of G7 or G20 nations. So we bump around at the bottom and our poor scientists, particularly in the universities, are just scrapping around all the time when properly funded, they would be even better than they are now. So our reputation is dropping that may in the long term influence our ability to attract the very best from around the world. And we've got to get that right. And that means we've got to get our reputations for being a sensible, politically conscious nation back as soon as we can. And you've talked about the issue around funding. And obviously, one of the ways that's manifested itself in higher education is the pressure on universities to generate revenue from other sources and really the key one of those being attracting overseas students. Are you concerned that one of the ways that 
perhaps quality is being eroded is because there's just too many people coming to universities now. The quality of the education they receive is maybe not as high as it once was. And, and frankly, that, they, that students really aren't getting their value for money. It costs £9,500 a year to go to university. Well, it's a complicated issue, this. I actually think um, further education is something that should be spread throughout the population. But I think we probably haven't fully fully recognised, though it does happen, that the, the further or higher education can vary in different institutions. And um, we tend to think of just the most highly academic ones, but that isn't the only offering. There's offerings which are um, really quite different and more vocationally oriented and so on. So there is diversity. When it comes to actually... Um, student fees. I I was actually paid to go to university because I came from a relatively poor working class family and so they paid for me to go. Uh, and that of course is now not possible. But there is something that is a bit disturbing about um, student fees because it turns the relationship of the student into, and the university into a contractual one where rather than actually a straightforward educational one because you pay money to get a good degree to allow you to progress in life if I can be crude about it and that puts a lot of pressure on the academics uh, to make sure that everybody is content which can result in grade inflation and so on so I I think that the universities are underfunded they do rely on student fees but I think it has changed the relationship there You also mentioned, of course, overseas students. Now, universities can charge a lot more if you're coming from a country like China. Um, But as a consequence of that, they become reliant on it. And if there's some sort of global political change, certainly in countries like China, which is not impossible, then um, they're very, very vulnerable. And, of course, where does that money mostly get spent? It gets spent on uh, research in the universities because the government isn't funding it at a high enough level. So our whole endeavour is actually somewhat fragile, research and scientific endeavour, and for that matter the arts and humanities, is vulnerable because of those arrangements. And there's other peculiar um, outcomes of that. We are short at the moment of doctors and nurses, but the universities like to train doctors and nurses from other countries because they can charge more. And so, weirdly, what happens is they're expanding medical education, but for those coming from abroad who are going to go back again, we're not even training enough people in-house because they can make so much more money by attracting students from abroad. So having this sort of market approach to higher education has a number of difficulties with it, which I don't think have been properly thought about. We've got back to politics again. We have. (laughs) I'm conscious, Paul, that a lot of topics we've talked about this morning, we've wound up with with a rather sort of bleak Outlook, whether it's relating to um, Brexit or higher education or maybe even the state of the NHS. But I, I want to finish by going back to what you were talking about to begin with, which was the science, frankly, and your pleasure and enjoyment and enthusiasm for science. And maybe try and get a sense from you on a more positive note about not just the work being done here at the Crick Institute, but elsewhere about... Where do you see the the real progress being made at the moment? What are the areas that you think 
we'll see you know transformation whether that's in treatment of serious illness or or in other fields for that matter well I'm not quite as gloomy as, as perhaps you, you said. I'm actually rather um, a jovial optimist, in fact. But I think that the way to be an optimist is to identify the problems and solve them and, and not get complacent about them. But you're quite right. I mean, it is science that my, drives my professional life. And it is extraordinary. that I, uh, One thing I'd like to say, I feel so privileged that I've been... F- supported all my life primarily to follow my curiosity. I mean, you couldn't imagine a a, a better life, really. And it is that freedom of following your curiosity that leads to discoveries that people don't imagine, which then in turn lead to applications they've not managed. So you have this spectrum of science from discovery to application. At the discovery end, you should be really free and let people pursue what they think is interesting. At the application end, it's more top-down. And often that isn't understood, that there's a spectrum in how you do science. But you were asking me about what what excites me, and I, I am excited, and I look at colleagues in other disciplines. Physics, we've got all this you'll have heard about it, dark matter and dark energy. We, we look out at the cosmos and 80% of the matter out there, we can't see. We don't know where it is. Now, isn't that completely extraordinary? And the same goes for energy. So we have this huge hole of understanding in physics, which the physicists are wrestling with. And I think that is, that is one of the great problems that we're facing, which I'm sure will be solved, not in a short period of time, but it will be solved. So that's one... We saw just last week the progress in America relating to nuclear fusion. Well, that was a second thing, and in the sense that this knowledge can also be very useful. And uh, although some people feel it's controversial, I I think the sensible climate uh, change people do not. Nuclear fusion, which if it can be performed, will be an infinite supply of energy without producing huge amounts of pollution. Now, it's technically extremely difficult, but we do make progress. If we turn to the life sciences, the what I see there are the fundamental problems uh, that at least I personally am really interested in is understanding how cells work, because cells are the basic unit of life. Every, all life, at least on this planet, is either a single cell like the yeast I work with, or a collection of cells like we are. And both are alive. And if we want to understand what life is and how life works, then the simplest entity is a cell. And we now are generating tools that gradually will help us to understand how a cell works, which will tell us a lot about how life works. But not only is that a great intellectual adventure, but it, by understanding that, we will all un- also understand all sorts of things that are useful for applications. Let's just talk about medicine. In fact, disease has its basis, most disease, in malfunction of cells. So if we understand how cells work and how they go wrong in disease, we are halfway there to thinking about how we might be able um, to deal with it. If we now look at, say, agriculture, being able to manipulate plants so that they can grow more efficiently, effectively, make better use of the sun um, in more marginal conditions, then what we may be able to do is to reduce the amount of land that has to be made available 
for agriculture, which will allow rewilding to take place. I mean, people don't often, they often see these things. You get the same people saying we need to rewild, but be against, for example, genetic uh, manipulation of crops, which would allow rewilding to take place. So there is this sort of um, inconsistency, I would say, there. So not only that, but understanding the cell and how life works will end up with industrial applications. We may be able to make chemicals that at the moment require high temperatures and oil and all sorts of things, making them in cells at much more gentle conditions. So these great discoveries of of physics and the life sciences and the chemistry that goes with that, not only is important for our culture and civilization about generating knowledge, but will produce knowledge that will be useful for humankind in all sorts of ways. I'm very pleased, Paul, that we've managed to finished on a upbeat note because I everything I hear from you despite the frustrations that you have voiced in relation to some local recent issues everything else I've had from you is is very positive and excited frankly about about the potential for science and applications it might have in in years to come so thank you very much indeed for your time it's been very interesting talking to you today well thank you Adam it's been a great conversation for me too very good So, my thanks to Sir Paul Nurse, who's Chief Executive of the Francis Crick Institute. You can find out more about the Crick Institute and Sir Paul's life and work on the show notes, which are available accompanying this podcast on our website, hudsonsandler.com. You can also find links to other episodes of the Fair and Square podcast and more information about Hudson Sandler's work in the UK and around the world. You can also follow Hudson Sandler on Twitter at Hudson Sandler. But until the next episode, from me, Adam Batstone, goodbye for now. To find out more about Hudson Sandler, our team, our culture and our thinking, visit our website, hudsonsandler.com. Hudson Sandler.